Hello and welcome, welcome back. My name is Sue and welcome to another of our Lerma Sue Walk and Talk podcasts. And in this episode today, I am very excited that we got to speak to Micah Bartels, who is, I was really looking forward to this because she's one of the positive psychology uh, and genetics experts. She is currently president of the International Positive Psychology Association until the end of the Vancouver conference coming soon. And um, she's been in this space for a long time, but her focus is on genetics and the genetics of well-being. So please join me for what is a fascinating conversation with Micah. All right. Well, as some people are here and it's one minute past and I like to get started. Ah, Deb, beautiful. You're already typing in chat. And Deb, I've just found out that Micah was actually um, spent some time in Brisbane as well. So she knows where sunny Queensland is. All right, so let me make a start. Um, I am very honoured um, to be joined uh, by Micah, Micah Bartels. And I have to admit, Micah, I had to check your name because so many people, when they introduce you, call you Mika. Yeah, so that's true. That's the story Micah. of my life. So I'm used to it, but it is Mika. <laughs> so, Micah, you are... Um, uh, well, I think you're an expert in the field of uh, how genetics link to happiness and well-being or how happiness links to genetics. And you were also uh, president of uh, IPA at one point. Uh, until still, first... still, till, till July. Oh, until July, of course. Yeah. I forgot. Yes, we yeah. haven't changed over, have oh, we? Yeah. <laughs> So um, we're here to talk about the genetic element, really, because we often spend a lot of time on Learn With Sue um, talking about all the contributing factors to uh, well-being, positive psychology, neuroscience, microbiome, all sorts of things. And yet you've actually played in quite a broad space. So can you just share with everybody who hasn't sort of read the little bio, um, what, how do you describe yourself and your area of research and interest? Yes, well, thank you, Sue. Thank you for the kind invitation. Uh, love to be here. Um, to describe myself, well, I uh, indeed, uh, I'm fascinated by uh, why people, some people are happier than other people. I'm fascinated by individual differences. Uh, and uh, actually, I always wanted to be a medical doctor. So I, I was very interested in the human physiology, human functioning, uh, well, we have a very strange system in the Netherlands with lotteries to get in a study. So I didn't end up in medical school, end up in psychology, and uh, always was interested in genetics. One of my favorite topics at high school was genetics. Uh, and then I found out that at um, the university where I currently work uh, in Amsterdam, we uh, they combine uh, genetics and psychology. So I uh, did my master's there, my bachelor's master's, and did my PhD. Uh, on psychopathology development in children. And uh, in the end, um, I realized that we always focus on this tiny group that doesn't feel well. Mm. Uh, so at that point, I, I thought, well, let's turn it around. Let's actually study why some people are better off than other people, feeling better, functioning better. Uh, and uh, so the field of happiness, but always uh, with genetics, because uh, during my PhD and also in the, the big literature in the field of behavior genetics and now also molecular genetics, it was crystal clear that genes always do matter for human factors, characteristics, whatever you can assess in a human being. Uh, so I thought, well, let's see what happens for happiness. And, and uh, it, we also found uh, 
genetic factors for happiness. So uh, I'm actually combining that. And I always say I'm also very interested in the environment. Um, and I think with a genetic design, you have the best design to study the environment because you can either control for the genetic differences or take the interplay into part. Mm. So thinking about that, and I know um, sometimes called the genome and the exposome and things like that, as in genetics environment. When we think about that, often in, and I'll, I'll go to the sort of past, I remember growing up hearing pretty much your, your genetics was your destiny. Um, that was pretty much what once upon a time was taught at school. Um, you will turn out like your mother, whether you like it or not, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> We know that that's not necessarily the case now. There is a very strong interplay between the two and probably more the external as in the environment and all those sorts of things. And, and I know you talk about certain percentages and people always love those, which isn't necessarily strictly cut and dry. But what do you see now with the latest research about the difference between those two and the interplay between those two? Yeah, well, first of all, in, historically, indeed, they talked about the nature-nurture debate as if it was a competition. Is it nature or nurture? And actually, we know it's it's always nature and always nurture. It's always there. Um, and importantly, your genes give you a certain sensitivity or a certain predisposition. But the environment, in, in, in interplay with the environment, this sensitivity um, comes into play or not. So, for example, you can have a set of genes that you uh, inherited from your mother or father or even way back. It's not always your mother and father because your mother and father carry genes that they don't use, but transmit to you, for example. Um, but you can have a sensitivity to develop depressive symptoms. But if life treats you well, you will never find out. It's there in your genome, but you don't use these genes. So it's not deterministic. And very importantly, genes determine differences between people. So if you think about exercise behavior, physical condition, we are all different. Part of these differences are driven by our biology, our uh, lungs, our uh, blood, uh, and, and the whole physiological system. If we train everybody, everybody can get a better physical condition. But we're not become the same. So the ones with a better genetic predisposition to develop a physical condition will improve more. So you can shift actually the whole distribution to, if you talk about well-being, to a better position. But the differences will always be there. And these differences are accounted for by genetic differences. Which is really interesting because, um, and some of the people on here will know this, I've had, I've been working with a clinic. Um, what is it? a translational cl genomics clinician um, and had mine done. And apparently I have the Olympic gene, as in lots of Olympic people have it. And I'm like, well, clearly I haven't turned that on. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so we, we often talk on our diploma about a little bit about genetics, so the Diploma of Positive Psychology and Wellbeing, which many of the people on here have completed. We sometimes talk a little bit about that epigenetics, the, the, the interplay, and if we turn it on or off. What have you found with regard to how easily it is to turn those things on or off? Like you say, the genetic predisposition to depression might be stronger or weaker, where are some of the stronger ones? Like I probably couldn't have changed the fact that I've ended up with curly hair. Um, that was genetically programmed, clearly. Yeah. Um, but other things don't seem to be as strong. So again, what have we what have we learned so far about the strength and weakness? 
Yeah, that's that's a very complex story um, because, um, well, for hair, hair color, eye color, but also the structure of your hair, we always were taught in school that it's this one gene, it's curly hair versus straight hair, and then you mixed it, and then in the end you have the mixture of both or not. It's way more complex. Uh, for example, human height, also a very simple uh, phenotype, as we call it. Uh, we have identified over 800 locations on the human genome that influence human height in the end. Wow. For happiness, we are currently uh, at around 400 locations at the human genome. And there probably will be many more. If we have larger samples, we will find many more. Um, the turning off and on, on the one hand, um, there need to be very strong processes. So for well-being, we, we studied it. We found in our first paper some locations that uh, have epigenetic changes, uh, differences between people that score higher on well-being and lower. Mm -hmm. uh, we thought, well, that's interesting. Let's get a very big sample, collaboration all around the world. And uh, we did, and uh, we didn't find anything anymore. So the stability of these findings is still very low. Yeah. Uh, and the mechanisms uh, are clear, but it's it's hard to determine uh, how strong the effect of the environment is. In a lab setting with animal studies, they can turn genes on and off or change the DNA methylation to turn genes on and off. We have very famous studies in the Netherlands where they looked at the people that uh, were born uh, in or just after the hunger winter at the end of the Second World War uh, because they were... Uh, a, a, under development in the womb of their mothers during a very uh, well difficult time, food-wise. Um, and these people have uh, more schizophrenia, more cardiovascular diseases. And that is actually brought back partly to these epigenetic changes. Mm. But that's a very extreme environment. Mm. Um, on the other hand, if you look at a human epigenome and you compare people that smoke versus people that don't smoke, you see huge differences. Um, so we try to find out how it works. We know the mechanisms, but I'm not sure if you will ever know which gene is turned on easily or not, uh, and how the real biological mechanism will work. So my hair is not going to suddenly go straight then. That's good. Probably <laughs> not. No, but, but, but well, many people have a change in hair. I had very straight hair when I was young, and at some point it suddenly, uh, well, don't know actually. <laughs> So one of the things that I loved, and you talked about this in your presentation in Iceland um, at the European conference, of um, trying to look at the differences between eudaimonic and hedonic well-being, or looking specifically about if there are um, particular SNPs, if you like, for happiness compared to more psychological or deeper or meaning elements. What's the latest findings there? Because that seems so nuanced. Yeah, yeah, well... Um, one of my fascinations with the field of well-being is um, what is well-being, how to measure it and how to measure it right. And, uh, of course, uh, a lot is based on uh, the old philosophical traditions of hedonic versus eudaimonic well-being. And some claim it's something different. Other people claim it's the same thing or under the umbrella of well-being. Uh, and we always work with uh, large data sets. So we thought, well, let's take a data-driven approach. Uh, so in the UK Biobank, it's a huge database that is available for any researcher around the world. 
they have very simple measures in big samples. So they have over 500,000 people and they have a question, uh, in general, I'm a happy person and the question, I consider my life to be meaningful. Of course, one item doesn't cover the whole hedonic versus the whole eudaimonic uh, aspect, but as a starting point, uh, we looked at that. The interesting thing we found is that we found the uh, uh, phenotypic correlation that everybody reports of about 0.5.6. So they are related, but they are not identical. That was finding one. But the other finding was that we found a higher genetic correlation, meaning that the genetic variance that is important for happiness is relatively strongly overlapping to that of eudaimonic well-being, so meaning in life. Yeah. Um, based on the genetic correlation, we say, well, I think it's more part of a similar construct than two completely distinct topics. Um, yeah. So that is what the, the finding is so far. Uh, we always are interested to sort out some kind of direction of position. Uh, are you happier because you live a meaningful life? Or if you're happy, are you better able to live a meaningful life? But given that they are so strongly interrelated, uh, especially at the genetic level, uh, the best method that's currently available is based on this genetic association. And it's actually too strong uh, to actually distinguish the direction of causation. So probably the easy, but not always fulfilling answer that it's probably bi-directional. Yeah, but I, I think yeah, you're right. And again, this is something we often talk about when you think about eudaimonic and hedonic, because if I am happier, I might be more likely to fulfill things that lead me towards my purpose. I might be more altruistic, more kind, more connected. Um, and then at the end of the day, if I've lived a more meaningful life, I might go to bed and go woohoo and feel a little happier. So exactly. I'm not yeah. quite yeah. sure we can pull them apart as easily as we think. No, no. So that's also, of course, described in the in the work of Barbara Fredrickson that, that always talks about the upward spiral. It's 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 things influence each other, and in the end, uh, you become happier and and feel more fulfilled with life. Yeah. So thinking about genetics, because I remember, um, and you're the expert, I've just read little bits around the edge, but I remember a few years ago, um, a paper came out, uh, and I want to say Michael Pluis was one of the um, uh, the researchers, and it was specifically around finding genes for happiness. And then the newspaper article said, gene for happiness found. And so I went back to the paper and I'm like, it specifically says a gene for happiness has not been found. Um, so how do you see the genetic work? Because clearly we want to find something and, and newspapers especially want to be able to promote that. How do you see the genetic research um, sort of playing out in the future? Now we've got much more nuance and better technology. And like you said, larger data sets. Where is it taking us? Yeah, well, what you mentioned is important. The, the history of genetics, we started with genetically informative design. So twin studies, family studies to estimate heritability. Mm -hmm. uh, back in it, we still do that because you can model very complex systems with these kinds of data. Um, and then at some point we were able to really measure DNA, um, but at a very simple level. So we indeed started measuring one gene. For example, the serotonin transporter gene is the famous one having huge effects. So there were many studies with one gene in relatively small samples and one study did find it and the other study didn't find it. Also back in the days there was a huge publication bias. So the studies that found the effect were published, the other ones were ended up somewhere uh, at a pile and never used again. Um, so there was a really biased view on the effects of one gene for something. 
Well, for complex human traits, it's never one gene. Only for some monogenetic diseases, it's one gene. Otherwise, like I said, for human height, it's already 800 locations, not even genes on the human genome so far identified. Um, so that, that literature is still alive. And I sometimes see even a peer paper I'm invited as a reviewer. Um, I instantly reject it and say, well, we're beyond the Canada gene approach. That isn't a valid approach because it's not reflecting the true biology of a human being. Yep. Then we yep. enter the array of genome-wide association studies. So the blind search, you take the whole set of genetic variants that you can measure. It's about eight to 10 million variants per individual, and you have you need a very, very large data set. So in the last GWAS for well-being, we had about 2 million observations, so 2 million people with 8 to 10 million locations per individual. So everybody who loves data uh, knows that it's huge. Um, and then we reported, uh, I think, 329 uh, locations. If we increase the sample, you, that's what they showed for height, what they also showed for schizophrenia, you will find more and more and more. And at some point, uh, there is a, a satisfaction level. So for height, probably will be a bit more, but that, not that many more. I think for well-being, uh, I, I expect thousands of locations in the end with tiny, tiny effects. Uh, and the combined effect creates the heritability. Okay, so I have a question, and this is a bit of a hypothesis that came out of one of our discussions on a previous Learn with Sue session, is there is a particular, not gene, but genetic pathway that is to do with detoxification, anti-inflammatories, helps us detox our system. Is it possible that a physical detoxification genetic pathway can also be used as an emotional detoxification pathway? That's an interesting thought. Uh, well, theoretically, I would say yes. Um, and that's mainly based on the literature that uh, comes out in the field of uh, depression and major depressive or disorder, uh, where they find a very uh, strong link uh, with the physiological system and inflammation, for example. Um, so, uh, well, depression and well-being are strongly linked also genetically, so biologically. So, uh, yes, I think that uh, the, the, all these physiological systems, and that's also one reason why uh, maybe uh, long-term stress influences your mental health, could go via a physiological, uh, biological pathway. So, yeah, I think those pathways are all uh, linked together. So that, that would be possible, yeah. Cool. Thank you for that, because I'd like to give then a round of applause to our Learn With Sue members, because we were discussing particular genetic pathways, and I was looking them up on my little database, you know, the APOE gene and the this and the clock gene and various, and we came across this one that talked about this detoxification, and, we're, and it, it mentioned depression, and we're like, well, that would make sense then, because if I'm better at detoxing, maybe I'm better at getting through my ne negative emotions, my challenging emotions, etc., so... I'm intrigued. Yeah, to you can. And, and also the fact, of course, um, if, if you're not uh, well in, in your physiological processes, your brain can have uh, disturbances that also disturbs the areas that are influential for your emotional state. Yeah. So actually bringing that into the mix, because um, my area of, of study was um, neuroscience, neuroscience of leadership and all those sorts of things. Um you're an expert on genetics. How do you see those two linking? 
What's very your knowledge? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, 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 the, the, the latest uh, uh, GWAS study, uh, we took a next step. In the first one, we only find a couple of locations. In, a, in the, the bigger one, we had over 300. And we said, okay, let's take one step into some kind of biological annotation. Uh, so we looked up uh, where these genes that we identified, genetic location that we identified, were expressed. Mm -hmm. uh, we started with the whole human body. Um, and of course, we, we anticipated and hoped uh, that it would show up in the brain, which was the case. Uh, sounds ridiculous. Of course, it shows up in the brain. But of course, it's also a proof of concept that it did. And then we were able to zoom in on the brain. Uh, and uh, these databases are not ideal yet because not all brain areas have been studied in, in the same level of detail. So it's a, it's a relative measure, but we found uh, an overexpression of these genes in the subiculum, which is a part of the hippocampus, which also makes sense because the hippocampus is also related to depressive symptoms. Uh, but uh, in that sense, I indeed think that, of course, well-being is something that starts in the brain. And I, so I expect the genes that are important for well-being are mainly expressed in the brain. Um, but on the other hand, we just uh, uh, published a, a, a review study on all neural correlates of well-being and trying to bring together all the uh, literature on MRI, EEG, fMRI, and whatever was available. Uh, and and that's that well that is still a mess <laughs> there's nothing that really stands out um and that is actually mainly based on uh, methodology and sample size mm -hmm. um so all studies are uh, studies are relatively small because mri studies are still very expensive time consuming uh, only done in certain populations so it's all european ancestry based um, and the effects are, of course, like we know for genetics now that the effects are small mm -hmm. and other effects are probably not bigger. So we need huge sample sizes to, in the end, find these tiny effects and the tiny balance or this brain area or the function in this brain area connected to another area. So I think most studies have a simplistic view, as, which is good as a starting point. And we're now, because we have that many data and possibilities, we have to build and, and use consistent measures, uh, which is, of course, with, with MRI scanners already a problem, but because the scanner in Amsterdam will not give the same results as the scanner in Australia. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we've already got complexity in methodologies and so on. And I did notice that paper had come out this week. I noticed you posted it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet because I've been away and traveling. So it's for my weekend reading. Um, before I just move on to the um, environmental and the the um, perhaps what we can do with this, how do we make it practical? Because a lot of times our members are really looking at, you know, if I work in HR, I'm a consultant or I'm a coach, how do I make this knowledge practical? I did just want to ask you one more thing. And again, it's something that cropped up for me this week that I haven't had a chance to read more about. So it's, I'm really talking off the top of my head. The pangenome. I don't even know what you mean. So... Okay, well, it literally came up on my feed from Neuroscience News this morning about the pangene genome of trying to map a larger genome of the whole species or something. And I'm like, I thought we'd already done ah, that. In that sense. Yeah, that, in that sense, that is based on, well, actually based uh, probably on the, on the older approaches that we used uh, animal models and animal studies. And the genome of uh, mice and rats and drosophila and zebrafish to study human characteristics. Uh, 
uh, and we already know and knew, and, and that's of course getting better. Uh, if I have a gene on chromosome uh, 12 and, and, and the long uh, arm of my chromosome, we exactly know where this part of my genome is in a mice. So we can actually uh, study a group of mouse and different environments and see if that gene is affected. And then we know what would happen in a human being. Mm-hmm. That was always done independently. And I can imagine that they mean that they will bring it all together. Um, and, and so use the different uh, possibilities uh, to combine information at different levels. Okay. I will delve into that again at the weekend because it was literally on my feed this morning. So I thought, well, yeah. this is perfect. Mike can tell me the answer. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 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 it's nice because uh, I think, of course, if you bring different levels of information together, that's also what we're going to do now. So we study the genome. But between the, the genome is the starting point. That's easy uh, because uh, there's, there's nothing that can, can influence the structure of your DNA. That's fixed. Yes. The expression can be influenced by the environment and other things. But you can combine all these different layers. So you can combine the genome with the epigenome, with the uh, metabolome, with the exposome. And, and studying it all independently will never give the answer. So we're now at the level that we are able to integrate all these levels mm-hmm. and see in what way the pathways run uh, and what influences what at what time in, in a certain environment. So. Yes, yeah, so, no, complexity. But this is, I think, uh, what interests me about how do we pull them together? Because I know my presentation in in uh, Iceland was about bringing things together and seeing how systematically we can have one thing influencing another, and we can hopefully make things better. And um, one of the things from an individual perspective is we've medically, you talked about, you know, potentially wanting to be a doctor at one stage. Um, medically, we've chopped the body into bits. You know, you have a cardiologist and a gastroenterologist and a whateverologist, and they all chop the body up. But we know we can't do that. And I, I have to admit, I've been playing with this with myself. I like to treat myself as a scientific experiment. So I've had my genes tested and worked with this genomic clinician. I've had my microbial genes tested and worked with that. Is that the future where we'll be able to explore some of these things and see how our environment and our all the bits of us, if you like, all those bits that you mentioned all come together? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, I think that the, the development into work with different people with different backgrounds is going into the right direction. So uh, uh, in historically, people will, well, I'm an expert in this and, and I do this and, and just listen to me. Uh, that's uh, luckily turn around and okay, I'm, I know a bit about this and you know a bit about that. So let's combine our knowledge and see if we can get a better picture. Um, that's nice. And um, these different levels will provide different information. So that's also often, if you talk about genetics, people say, well, what will it provide us? And the only thing that it will provide us is extra information. It will never replace uh, uh, an interview by a doctor or it will never replace... Uh, a blood sample where you test the hormones. It's all additional information. So where we hopefully in the end will end up is that, um, and that's not reliable enough now to use it, but that you can get a personal genetic profile like you just just, did it for yourself. Uh, These profiles uh, for well-being, you can do it because we know uh, what variants uh, have an effect and how big the effect is. And if you have the variants, you can just make your own polygenic score for well-being. And we will differ. Some have a very high polygenic score. It's easier to become happy and others have a low score. Mm -hmm. This is just extra information. 
So ideally in the future, for example, if you talk about psychiatry uh, in the Netherlands, I don't know the systems in other countries, people go to a psychiatrist when they don't feel well, then they get a diagnostic interview and are diagnosed with a certain uh, uh, condition, uh, which is already a complex thing because these conditions are all linked, but set aside. if at that point you could also take a DNA sample and calculate the polygenic score for depressive symptoms and for well-being. At that point you can and add that to the information you already have. At that point you can use that extra information to say, okay, if someone has depressive symptoms but a relatively high polygenic score for well-being, well, let's try some positive psychology interventions instead of focusing on getting away the system, the symptoms try to actually improve the well-being because it's some somewhere there in the genome there is the sensitivity to be happy yeah. let's try to trigger that so uh really and it's used of, of course in in uh, in the field of cardiovascular disease they already use uh polygenic scores uh at an early age to tell people well, you're at high risk to develop cardiovascular disease when you're older here is a program to help you to adapt your lifestyle for example that's something they do in the united states one other thing that is uh, also on the table in the Netherlands, also I saw it in the news on the United States, is the breast cancer screening. Mm-hmm. That's now totally driven by age in the Netherlands. So when you're 50, it starts and, and, and seen, mm-hmm. in, the frequency increases when you get older. That is nonsense because we know a lot about the genome and some people need screening when they're 20 mm-hmm. and some people don't need the screening. If we include the polygenic score, we're not going to change. We're just going to change that we don't use age as the identifying factor. We're going to use your genetic risk in combination with AIDS as the identifying factor if you should screen at 20 or 25 or 50 for the first time. So at some point, this information, but also the microbiome, uh, the metabolome, all these layers will provide extra information that we need to integrate to get the best picture. Mm. Which maybe will make life more effective. Um, or interventions more effective, yeah. Yeah, and and, by, and and well, we also need to be careful because uh, um, you already see there are companies like 23andMe and MyHeritage that, that claim that they can give you a genetic report, uh, like the Olympic gene. Of course, there is a gene that is more important for exercise behavior than other genes, but exercise behavior also has this very complex biological and physiological mechanism inter- in interplay with the environment. So there are also uh, thousands of variants involved. I also did the 23andMe one and uh, well, I had all kinds of strange answers. I, I was actually not an Olympic sport. I knew, but uh, but based <laughs> on one gene. So it's, that's, that's actually useless information. Uh, yeah, I did mine through the genomics clinician. It was three, three by four or something. I can't remember the actual name of it, but uh, it did make me giggle. <laughs> But so, so taking things a bit broader, obviously, um, you know, you, you've explored things around the heritability and the 40 percent roughly of the well-being differences. We know that it's easier for some people, based on what you just said, to become happier than others, potentially. But everybody may have the capacity to increase. And then we've got this environmental element. So even though genetics is sort of definitely, as I say, your absolute expertise, you have been in PodPsych for a long time and you have a lot of knowledge, a lot of different connections. What are you seeing as some of the key areas that we can actually practically do something about if we want to uh, shift our well-being? Yeah, well, we did one study, like I said, genetically informative designs are also ideal to study the environment because you can control uh, for certain factors. 
the most important overall message is that uh, it's different for everybody. Mm. Um, so, for example, to, to take exercise as an important example, there's often a very strong claim that exercise, uh, if you exercise more, you, you become happier with a very clear direction of causation, starts exercising and the happiness follows. Well, what we did, uh, we looked at identical twins. Identical twins have the, the exact same genome. So you have two identical people, genetically speaking, and then you can see if one starts exercising more mm -hmm. and the other not, then the one that starts exercising more should become happier if the mechanism is totally causal. Well, that didn't happen. So there is a strong link between well-being and exercise, but maybe it's the other way around. If you feel well, it's easier to go exercising. Then there's the complexity that some people that do an exercise are feel very happy right after they stop exercising. So that helps them to do it again and again. And some people really feel bad after exercising and never feel good when they exercise. So they should find something else to do. So the main thing is that there are individual differences. Um, and that is where the genetics comes in. Uh, these differences are determined by your genes. So you can shift a bit, but you should always try to find out what makes you happy. Yeah. And nobody can actually prescribe your happiness recipe. It's, it's pure based on your individual background in interplay with your environment. Mm. It's that personal. On the yeah. On the other hand, we also looked at the exposome as, a, as the, the bigger picture. Systematically, like what you do with genes, just put everything into the mix and see what happens. So we took 162 factors based on postal codes. Uh, that's a limitation, of course, because you're not spending your whole time in your postal code zone, but as a starting point. Uh, and fascinating in that study is that we, uh, when we correct for socioeconomic status factors and, uh, and from the individual and the neighborhood, one factor stood out as only being significant, and that's safety. So regardless of your socioeconomic background, regardless of your genome, safety is an important factor for everybody. And that is something that should be taken into account when we develop uh, living areas for people, I think. Well, thank you so much for listening to this first part of our discussion with Micah Bartels as part of the Lerma Sue Walk and Talk podcast. If you are interested in continuing to hear the rest of that one hour session, then uh, please jump on learnwithsue.com.au and maybe consider becoming a member of our Lerma Sue community. On the portal, you will find all of the recordings over the last few years with some amazing experts, as well as invitations to join the sessions live, uh, other experts coming up, as well as live sessions with myself on different topics to do with well-being, as well as courses, research reviews, and much, much more. Wishing you a wonderful week ahead, and I hope to see you next time on our Lomasu Walk and Talk podcast.